And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's the Rodcast. Brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of the Rodcast, David Steele. Oh, that's what we're talking about. Thank you again. Another fine introduction from our announcer, Larry Babb. Thank you for that, Larry. Yes, I am your host, David Steele, and you have tuned into another episode of the Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation. We have a fine show for you today, but uh, I first want to do a little house cleaning, if that's okay. I... Uh, First, want to thank you folks, actually, for just continuing to check out this broadcast and uh, the guests that we bring you. Uh, we've been off for a little while, and sometimes that's just kind of how it has to be. Uh, we're a very small team here at the American Hot Rod Foundation. and But, you know, the good news is that that usually means a whole lot of new content has probably shown up at the foundation and a lot of research and cataloging is being done. Again, we appreciate your support around here and we hope that everything from our website to our podcast and all our social media channels we hope that stuff continues to be interesting to you guys uh, as you probably know we love doing this stuff but it means the most to us that so many of you care so now as far as house cleaning it's funny i've had a funny thing a few folks have written to me and a couple of folks have actually come up to me at different car events and they've they've wanted to know who this announcer guy is that we have which is hilarious to me uh i love that that uh that people notice stuff like that so yeah uh, i'm glad you asked our our man uh larry babb is an old friend of mine from my days as a as a touring musician and, and he happens to be out there still delivering uh, some of the best drumming I've ever had the opportunity to play with. He's he's just amazing. And uh, for you country music fans, if you're a country music fan, you certainly know who Gary Allen is. And, uh, well, that's who you'll find Larry Babb backing up every night out there on the road. And, you know, it's it's just one of those things. When you live on the road with people and are literally putting down hundreds of thousands of miles together, you get to know and recognize things in people that you might not otherwise. And uh, in addition to being a super talented, super great guy, uh, Larry's also very unassuming. So take it from me, this is uh, this is a rarity in a musician. <laughs> but that's just who Larry is. He's a quiet guy, no ego, always happy to be out of the spotlight. And maybe that's why he gravitated to drumming, I don't know, but... Uh, what I do know is that when I first had the idea of having Larry record our bumpers for the show, he, I mean, he thought I'd lost my mind, uh, really. I mean, you just have to know him. I mean, getting in front of a microphone and like whooping it up uh, is like the last thing that Larry Babb would ever think to do. So, but, you know, he's also a generous guy and uh, and I guess he thought, well, what the heck, I'll try something new. So... He did, and we're glad that he did. And um, he was nice enough to do all of these announcing spots and uh, 
I don't think anyone who listens to the show would think he's anything but a professional voice actor, but he's not only not that, but it was definitely his first time of ever attempting such a thing. So we're pleased to be able to say we started his voiceover career. Uh, just kidding, Larry. Um, but thank you again for that. And thanks for asking um, for to the folks who uh, were curious about that. Um, so speaking of being a touring musician on the road, as some of you might know, my interest in recording interviews with people from the hot rod and racing world started really a, a long time ago, uh, long before I hitched my wagon to the American Hot Rod Foundation. Uh, but that's, I think, one of the reasons uh, I ended up doing work with them. Sometime in the mid-90s, I think probably 95 or 6, uh, I began taking a small field recorder with me on the road when I was on tour. You know, just in case I ran into any early hot rodders or pioneer car guys of any type, I'd try and sit down and get their story sometime during the day, which was sometimes tough, but but it was always interesting. It led to a lot of adventures, that's for sure, because again, I'd only be in a town for a day and trying to get together with someone, get an interview done all in that one day and get to sound check and play a show that night could sometimes be a challenge, but... I don't know. I think I, I managed to, to capture some stuff I'm really proud of. and But a lot of the time I was talking to guys who would have otherwise never had their stories uh, captured or saved. And uh, so this, this made me happy to do that. But there were also other times when I'd get very lucky and I would find my way to someone like today's guest, who is a serious icon who'd really made a mark in the car world. And, you know, this would only happen because I knew someone who knew them. And this, this episode is definitely an example of that. Uh, it was through my good friend, Roy Carruthers in Indianapolis. I was able to get to meet up with or interview today's guest because of him. Uh, some of you will recognize Roy's name. Uh, some of you will just recognize Roy's last name, but, uh, Roy is the son of hot rod pioneer and racer Doug Carruthers. And Doug not only owned and raced the CNC special, which most probably most commonly known for being the version it took on after Roy's dad sold it. And it finally made its way uh, to Art Chrisman and became the number 25 car, the the first Chrisman dragster, uh, as some people refer to it. But uh, Doug was one of the original members of the of the Roadrunners Club, the famous California Hot Rod Club in the uh, late 30s through the 40s into the 50s and had a long and serious career in big time racing. Doug's son, Roy, had a hell of a career of his own, certainly, and and he knows a lot of legendary folks in uh, the Indianapolis area. He's, he's our kind of guy. He's a historian and he's a fellow promoter of the the good old days, quote unquote, and and uh, he helped to make this interview happen. So we definitely have to thank Roy Carruthers for what what we'll hear today. So uh, I, now I have to do my usual apologies for various things here. You know, like I said, this interview was done a little on the fly. Uh, it was never intended to be broadcast in any way. My only goal was to capture some history and go from there. Uh, so you'll have to deal with the casual nature of this, but uh, I think it'll be worth it. Uh, the day that I visited Willie Davis's shop, 
Uh, he and some friends were deep in the recreation of the city of Burbank streamliner that, you know, made Willie so famous in the hot rod world. And as any of you hot rod historians will know, this is the car that took on many names during its short but incredibly successful and important career. People have obviously called it the city of Burbank, um, the Bob Estes Mercury Special, uh, the CT Special, the Duncan Hill Davis Streamliner. And again, all in a very short period of time, this, this car had many or I should say lived many lifetimes. His goal was to complete the car in time, to have it on the salt the following year, the year after this uh, interview was done in 2012. So these guys were really thrashing. I mean, they were focused on the car and it was probably not the most uh, you know, opportune time for me to come into their shop and you know, set up a little film camera and, and sit him down and you know, try and keep him from working for two hours. But he's very generous and, and he did it. But yeah, I mean, they were trying to be on the salt 60 years to the day after Willie and his streamliner had shattered basically these FIA land speed records that were once held by the mighty auto unions of Germany. I mean, just a truly amazing accomplishment done by some young hot rod kids in Burbank, California in the early 50s. No matter how many times I read this story, or think about this story, I can't stop shaking my head. I mean, just imagine what Hitler would have said if you'd told him that some kids in America in their late teens and early 20s would be taking away your land speed records in a little over 10 years. I'm not sure he would have been pleased, but it would have been fun to see the look on his face. So anyway, as you, you'll soon hear, incredibly, that's just one of Bill or Willie sometimes called tiny, sometimes called cork, uh, Willie Davis's accomplishments. So Willie Davis would involve himself in an enormous amount of auto racing during his lifetime, ran the dry lakes after the war. He ran during the first years of Bonneville. He helped the running of AJ Watson's shop. Uh, he was one of the first engine builders in Southern California to tune on a dyno or to, or to run nitro and work with nitro. Willie was involved in the original Carrera Panamericana, uh, as well as some early Cal Club sports car racing. Uh, he fielded a car during the early days at Sebring. He was involved in the earliest days of drag racing and, you know, fostered the careers of some of the most famous drivers in American auto racing history. I mean, guys like Gary Bettenhausen, Johnny Rutherford, who he gave his first uh, USAC ride to. And on and on and on. So I have to say, one of my favorite things about Willie is that he's a real deal hardcore racer. And that's the reason why he's flown so far under the radar for so many years. You know, when someone's working that hard for that many years to get a month's worth of work done between weekends, you're not going to find him promoting himself in magazines or, or in any other way. He's simply been too busy making race cars go fast and behave and win to be bothered. So I'm happy to say that as old as this interview is uh, that was done back in 2011, Willie is still happy and healthy and living in the Indianapolis area. He may not be at the track every weekend anymore, but at least now we can talk to him and learn from him and hear this story 
now that he's uh, put his wrenches down. But uh, again, we're pleased to bring you this candid and and pretty casual conversation uh, with our friend, hot rod legend, Willie Davis. Is this George that called you tiny or was that a, a nickname when you were a, a hot rodder, young hot rodder? Oh, somewhat. I guess so. I was known more as Bill. If it's all right with you, I'd like to start at the beginning. Um, where were you born? French Hospital in downtown L.A., right by Chinatown. And in what year? 1930. 1930. And wh were, your parents, uh, were your parents born out there? Yeah. Well, no. Uh, my parents, uh, my dad was born in St. Louis. My mother was born in Chicago. So they, 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 their families went out there. Oh, I see. Okay. Back in the twenties. So they grew up out in California, yeah, they grew in California yeah. and that's how they met. They met out there. Yeah. They both worked as a bank in downtown LA, security first national. They're both in the banking business. So no, no automotive interests necessarily from your parents or none whatsoever. So you were a little bit of a, kind of a, well, maybe not a black sheep, but... No, I wasn't maybe. a black sheep, because at that period of time, uh, cars, hot rods, roasters, and that were the alternative. They were the thing. They were really the only sideline you had. What do you, what do you mean by that when you say that? Well, as for hobbies, as a hobby or... A, you couldn't make a living at it as a profession. But everybody, all the guys around the light bed and the drags when they first started, we're all, that's their, their, that was their hobby. Yeah. But they, they also, I mean, these were cars that were their transportation. And transportation, oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so my first, my first car was a 1930 Model A Cabriolet. I don't know what, I can't remember what I paid for it. But huh. I had a stock Model A engine. So first thing you do is you, oh, I think Sixton was the name of it. So you put a two carburetor manifold on it. And then you drive it. And then I was working as a carpenter and a cement finisher. Uh, our family, uh, Dad was was involved in the, uh, building houses during the war. We built apartments and houses all in the L.A. area. Watts, Santa Monica, built houses in the valley. Then we moved to the valley, Burbank, in 41, middle of 41. We were there when the order broke out, so. So you would have... You didn't serve in the war, is that correct? No. Yeah, you were just a little, young. you were too young. I was too young for World War II, and I was too, physically, uh, I was 4F for the Korea War. Hmm. I was too heavy, so, so I didn't have to go to Korea. I had a friend of mine, well, actually, the first guy that I went to Lake Bed with, with my roadster, was named by, uh, 
Don and Eddie Conyers. And they went to Burbank High School. And Eddie was old enough to go to Korea. And he was killed at uh, Chelsea Reservoir. And uh, Don, they had a 34 coupe they ran. And their dad was a upholstery guy. And he built the first tarp cover for the cockpit. We uh, took it up there, drove it up there, and then we drove it to Lake Bend when we ran. Uh, I can't remember that. It was in the 20s, 120s, somewhat. With a street we roadster? The street roadster, yeah. The roadster I drove on the street. So. And would you say that was your first that was hot first rod? Hot rod, yeah. Because yeah, the cabriolet. Yeah, I bought this 32 Ford Roadster for $500. Hmm. It had a. Oh, I can't remember what size motor. It had lightning heads on it, and a lightning manifold, two carburetor manifold. I think we were at 125 or 126 foot. So then started the evolution of just building bigger motors. And when you bought that car, someone had already started making it into, yeah, into it, a hot rod? It was a hot rod, but it was. I drove it to work every day. That was my transportation. I drove it up in Chile, put the fender law in effect in LA and California, where you had to have fenders to run on the streets. And by then I bought, I bought the Roadster and I ran it. And uh, I had my old motor in it, but it wasn't my good motor. I had built a good motor yet. And then I ran, I built my motor and I ran it in the car with uh, Scolbin and uh, Holly Hedrick. Holly Hedrick at one time was an editor of Hot Rod Magazine. Hmm, mm -hmm. But he lived over in Pasadena. And uh, we ran the Lake Bed and that's when we ran 143. And that was in 50, 50 51, I can't remember. So then we decided to, well, I had to be 50. Because 51, I decided to go to Bonneville for 51. No, 50. I decided to go to Bonneville, so I bought a rear end, first changer in for it, put it in, build a motor, another motor. And uh, then I went and bought a, to tow it there, so I didn't have to drive it up there. I bought a 34 Ford pickup. I didn't have any, all I had was the front windshield. I bought it off the Dom brothers who had a 27T roaster featured on Hot Rod Magazine hmm. back in that period of time. Mm -hmm. He had it sitting there behind his garage. And it had a 21 stutter in it. So I took it out and I built another motor, quarter five sixteen motor to put it in. The stock heads and that. I drove it to, I went to start the roadster and I had put in the wrong the ring gear on the wrong side of the end. Oh because model A you put it in either side. Yeah. In either side. So I couldn't get any oil pressure. So I had some tires that I borrowed that I had to take up there, so I took off and I went up there. So I was went to Bonneville what the fifty and then I ran 
buddy of mine, he had a 32 Ford Roadster up there, and I ran it. 139, I think, something like that. Then I came back, and of course, I was on the lake bed with the roadster. Then 51. Oh, I built one in with his Riley, Jack Riley. He had a 29 roadster, and I put my motor in it. And that's when we ran, I think, 149 at 51 in Bonneville. I had to, that's the motor there sitting in the spring line. That's that block that in there. Block, that's the first time I ran that block. Huh. It had a, a YN four carburetor manifold on it. And it was the second manifold that Phil Wyan had made. Oh. I went down to Phil's and told him I had to have one. He took, took it out of a box that he was getting ready to ship to a guy in Texas. Sold to me. So, so I ran it and then Fifty-two. We built the streamliner. So, how many motors would you have built before you built this engine that's in oh, the streamliner? Oh, it's hard to say. Probably mm, half a dozen. Just yeah. for yourself, or were you building no, engines for other people? For people too. I ran a. I built a three-three motor for a friend of mine that had it. Enough. What do you have? A forty-one coupe. And we fooled around on the dyno with that. I had a friend of mine, this top cop, who owned a third interest in the dyno there at Hilburn's and uh, Jack Ingalls. And I used that that dyno to run my motors on. I never ran this engine here that's in the streamliner. I ran it on the dyno, and I ran it on Chuck Botman's dyno there in Anaheim. It, there couldn't have been too many dinos around back no, then. No, there weren't very many dinos around. Now, I think Edelbrock had one, is that right? Like Edelbrock yeah, and Iskey kind of shared one? for himself. It, um, Tony Capena had really the first public dino. Well, there was one electronic balancing down in L.A. They had a dino that they had outside people that rent it. But Capena had the first one. Hmm. He's the one that burped, uh, brought the purple fuel, which was actually nitro. And he was the one that introduced it to everybody. Of course, I had run it. When I ran this 143, we ran 25% nitro. But this one other guy that was with us, he had a friend, a professor at Caltech, that told him how, what to use. Now to That's handy. Yeah. Now, did I hear you right? You said you ran nit nitro in 1943, or, or you no. went 143 with it? I ran 143.08 on 25 percent. On 25 percent. Yeah, okay. I made a run at 136, and then we turned around and put the nitro in it, and I waited and we ran 143 the next run. So, where did word had kind of gotten out on nitro during the war years? A little say? bit, but it was still kind of a secret, really. Had had that uh, moment already happened where Edelbrock ran his V860 midget on nitro at Gilmore yeah. and blew off the offies? Yeah, he was running his nitro in the 60s, Because that, that story's become kind of legend. I wondered, I, I always wonder, like, how many guys knew about that when it actually happened. 
Like if that wor if word kind of spread back then, even that uh, Edelbrock. No, I wasn't had track racing at the time. Though I really don't know, and I really can't remember, you know, here at Thomas Edge. Mm-hmm. The Nitro was good. I used to run. Well, I ran this engine here. I ran in on Popman's Dino on 75% Nitro. Mm hmm. And I got 305 inch horsepower out of it. Out of 305 inches. You got how much horsepower? 305. The horsepower per cubic inch on 75%. And I ran in the belly tank, I ran 75%. And everything I ran after that, drag racing, I drag race with this motor, with that, uh, this Holly Hendrick, who I mentioned earlier, he had a, a Miller dragster, just like our Christmas, and we raced Christmas at Santa Ana, and most of the time we beat. Wow, because that, that's impressive, because he was kind of the... The king. Well, yeah, but you could rattle him real easy. At first, when he first started drag racing, you could drag him. He had that car. Well, actually, uh, Leroy Neumeyer owned the car, and he was in the Army. Mm -hmm. That's where uh, Art got hold of that. Leroy would have bought that car from Roy Carruthers' dad, is that right? From his dad, Doug? I think so. Yeah, I think that's where it involved that. Yeah, Leroy was good people. I liked him. Hmm. I raced against him oh, our whole lifetime. <laughs> now, because we used to have shooting contests, he was working for Foyt building Ford Motors when we had the double knocker boards, double cam boards. Mm -hmm. And I was working for Leader Car, and I was building motors for them. And we were using Chickie's Autolite Dyno in Long Beach. We have a race to put out the Mars Horsepower. We'd go back and forth. <laughs> so, it was good reason. He's good people. So you, uh, we're, we'll get to this eventually, but I, I didn't realize that you had stayed in California that long. So when you were doing indie projects and working, building four cam Fords. We were um, commuting. I was living there in the winter and out here in the summer. Oh, okay. Okay. So, I didn't move back here until 70. I finally got to the point where I added up at the end of uh, 70. No, 69, Satan. And I spent six weeks on the road hauling race cars back and forth from LA back. I'd bring one back, and then I'd go fly out and bring another one back, or drive out back out and get it. That's about a total of six months, so that's why six weeks. So I just moved everything back here. No, I just rented houses. Our garages back here working during the summer. Garages were easy to rent. I worked Watson's house one year. Of course, I worked for Watson for a long period of time. So. But actually, I took, I ran his car four or five times when he wasn't even there. He spent car. He'd be off vacation or be off someplace else. And I'd take Judd Larson, we'd go run. We won, I think, I won three races in that car. Did not include my total races one. So you were doing that, did he know you were doing that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, I asked him, <laughs> he, had, he had the car, Larson wanted to run, so 
And I wasn't running my sprint car at that. There was a period there where I didn't run it because I really couldn't afford to. I was having engine problems. I hmm. probably got those solved. Now, what year would that have been? When, when, when about would that have been that you were just oh, talking about? Oh, it'd be from, say, probably 64, 65 to 67, something like that. I think the first year that Gary drove for me was 67. Gary Bettenhausen? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You guys had quite a, quite a run, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, we were very, very fortunate. We got together. Got along real good, and so we had a good combination. Lucky, we finished the races, and that's what it takes. So we finished good. So, what was your? You had a quite a winning streak with him. I, I can't remember the numbers on it, but you won some championships and. No, uh, we won a championship uh, two years, '69 and '71, and uh, we ran second and. Uh, 68 and 70 for a total of four years, first and second. So and I've won, I've won 37 or 38 USAC features for the features. That's a pretty, that's a pretty good record, Willie. Out, outside of, <laughs> well, like with Watson's car, I had, I took it, well, one time, uh, I think we were going to Japan. And he had flown out to the coast, because he lived on the coast until late 60s. Oh, he had a house here, but he got to the point where moving his kids, they got too high in the schools to do that. Hmm. So they had to put them in one school or the other, you know, here or California. So he was out there, and we had a race at Winchester. And Larson wanted to run Winchester, so I took the car over there for him. And we won that one. That was one of the little side bits of that one. I always remember, and I won't forget it. It's we left the racetrack after we won, and I stopped the little town of Lynn. It's on US 36, just this side of Winter. It's not too far for gas. I had to get gas in the wagon. I had bought the leader card wagon, and so I went in to use the telephone. I walked in, and the only telephone that was on the wall is a hand crank telephone. One of those wooden telephones with the speakers that now. Wow, still in the 1960s, they still yes, had that on the wall. I had this hand crank. So wow. I cranked it, and I got an operator, and I called California. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so <Huh>. it worked. <laughs> wow. Huh. Oh, this, this country has changed so much from the time I first started to now. I, I can't imagine. Yeah, it's unbelievable, really. Like cell phones, telephones. I can remember the first time, not getting off of it, that mobile phones, I forget what year it was, but it wasn't too long ago, at Valvoline. Jack Stamper was running the Valvoline. This Jim Reynolds driving the truck for him. And they really got in the big time. They got a mobile phone for their truck. Wow, they're like Elvis. So they could call, you know, <laughs> when he was on the road. And there were a lot of places he couldn't go. You know? Yeah. I can't imagine there was much service for that. No, there yeah. wasn't much service, but they still, you know. Hmm. But I remember that was the big thing then. And look at now. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Unbelievable.
Yeah, I can't. I can't imagine. I mean, just the the state of racing and and uh, the kind of the do-it-yourself aspect of oh, yeah. being able to build a car and be competitive with it. That I mean, you've really well, yeah, you've really we, seen that transition. Well, we built cars. When I built my sprint cars. Uh, it was just like this. I had to make everything. Mm-hmm. Now all you got to do is look in the catalog and order it, which we've done on some of the stuff. Just like the rear end, where it was cheaper to buy a rear end from Winners than it was to convert a Model A or yeah. rear end, cut the housings down like we did, because yeah. it's got a 48 inch tread. Mm. The stock tread's 57 inches, so. so that's why. And steering arms and stuff like that. I'm still making a bunch of little stuff, but, uh, you know, but you can buy it. For a race car, you can look in the catalog and buy it. And the majority of the time, it's cheaper than what you can produce, produce it for. I wanted to get back to this engine that's right next to us, that's in the, your streamliner that you're, you're rebuilding. Um, you, put, you built this, this engine, in uh, what year would that have been that you built it? Because you initially, like you said, you put it in your street roadster. Oh, it'd have to be the early 50s, 50 or 51. Well, I ran that motor in 51. I had a couple others I'd built before that, but this was a, I found a truck block, which I bore out to 716. And that block's got, uh, I think, four sleeves in it. Well, I, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, what was, when you first... But that was through attrition. Yeah. One of them, I spun the lake bed one day and filled the exhaust pipes up full of dirt. And it hydraulic the cylinder and pushed the cylinder wall up. I took the head off it was full of dirt, lake dirt. Yikes. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> See, and uh, it's still in good shape. But. I'm, I'm kind of interested to know, though, the very first time you built it for your street road, sir, um, what, was, what was the configuration of the engine initially? This engine was never in the streamline. We ran an Adams Muller, or CT Automotive Supply, which they were going to have an Ardu, and then they got hold of this motor, which is a Hemi. Yeah, it's a nice motor. The motor's sitting out at Speedy Bill's Museum in Lincoln, Nebraska. Yeah, it's, it has the, the overhead valve conversions yeah. that overhead Cl- Clem Tebow uh, designed, right? But I never did run. All I did, I figured there was this a replica of what we ran in 52, and that's a replica of the engine I ran, so why not put it in that? You know, hmm. why put a later model engine in it? So we just put apply that just to run. But the whole concept of doing this is to put it back because it was lost. We lost it in '55. We broke an axle and it got sideways, just the drive axle, and it flipped and it had its body spread for over a mile, fiberglass body. And uh, it, so it's gone. I don't know what I did with this, the chassis of that. So I figured, well, this have something, there's nothing left, we'll make it for a museum piece. This is what we ran in 1956. The wheels yeah. and all that stuff are 52 model. And we're trying to stay as much as 52, so I figured I'd like to run the car. Just say, okay, this is a replica, it runs. 
I'd like to go 200 miles an hour. You know? So, here it is. So, we have to meet the standards now in order to do that. Yeah, I would think passing tech yeah. in this so day and age. So, we're having stuff and stuff. We'll put a cage on it and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, around, try to get as much of the original configuration. So, it's a whole concept to have in it. So, it's a museum piece. Figure well, if we can run it once, then it can go in the museum or whatever. Well, like you said, it's a museum piece, but it's a, it's actually going to be on the salt next year, and it's going to run. We hope. So that's a, <laughs> that's a pretty special museum piece. Yeah. Well, we all hope. Uh, I think it's great. I mean, 60 years, basically 60 years to the day it's from when you. It's what we shoot shoot for. When you set your record. Yeah, we set the world record. At the time, were you aware of of the fact that you were breaking that class oh, yeah. B, that oh, class B FIA? Definitely. Yeah, because yeah, we had to go. We we ran the, the speed week. Then we had to go back to AAA, who was the authorized FIA representative in the United States. We had to go to them. They had to time it to make it official. So this is when we got Bob Estes. It was a Lincoln Mercury dealer that ran race cars. Uh, both uh, Judd Phillips and A.J. Watson worked for Estes on Champ Cars there at Speedway. And he put up the money for the AAA to run the record run. Wasn't much at the time, but it was still more than we had. We couldn't afford it. Well, if memory serves, I think it was $2,100. That could be. I can't remember. Or maybe it was twelve hundred dollars. It was one of the two. Yeah. Twelve hundred sounds more like. Yeah, it does actually. Yeah. Um, but that's what you know. And you had already run at Speed Week. You'd you'd yeah, make, we run you'd made week, the time. Yeah, we back home, and uh, we got mobile oil repainted the car. Of course, it was one of those deals when we made the body. We did it out in the hot sun. Well, done in July when we built the body there in Sun Valley or Burbank area, right by the airport. This friend of ours, uh, Don Spencer, he's very well known. Oh, yeah. He yeah. had a nice 32 roadster. He sure did, yeah. yeah. But Lizzie never ran the same. He was always a part. Huh. We'd write about it. We were in the same club. You were in the same Roadster Club. Same Roadster Club as Spencer. Which, which was what? Which Roadster Club was that? Uh, had to take me. I think. Uh, what is it, Burbank or a Glendale Club? Glendale. Well, I was in two clubs. I was in the Glendale Coop and Roadster Club, and then the. Uh, oh, total blank. Navarro. Beatty, myself, Spencer. I've got a sheet with it on here somewhere. Dave? Yeah. What was the club I was in? Stokers. Stokers. Stokers, okay. Glendale Stokers. There you go. Yeah. I couldn't have a total blank. I couldn't think about it. Huh. Well, tell me about that, because I know uh, Dean Batchelor was 
also involved in yeah, back in, in making the, uh, in the uh, road runs, not road runs, but uh, uh, sidewinders. Okay, sidewinders was the uh, deal. Glendale Coon Roadster Club was a uh, Rosetta Club. Okay. Oh I, yeah, so you could I run Rosetta with Glendale Coon Roadster Club. Hmm. That was a strong club too. It was a big bunch of big headers in that. The dog and Don McGurney belonged to it. Well, tell me about, um, give me kind of the basic history of how the body was built for the streamliner originally. By how you read it. <laughs> well, wasn't it kind of unusual that you made it out of fiberglass? Weren't a lot of guys using aluminum? Well, at the and time we built the body, there was two places in Los Angeles that you could buy fiberglass. The bat and the red. Mm -hmm. Or the cloth and the red. And there's Wilkie, Walkie. He worked for Lockheed. And his kid hung around. And his kid is, he's run a streamliner himself. Set a world of records up there at Bonneville. So. Ken Wilkie. But he, he helped us build the body. He told us what to do. Hmm. Otherwise, been lost. So. so he'd already. This guy had already worked with. Well, he worked at Lockheed, and he mm -hmm. built the radar domes for the constellations. When Lockheed first put the radar dome, radar units on the constellation, the twin, three-tailed constellations, he he was one of the team that built the domes. So that's how he knew about it, you know. But he'd had, what, one or two years knowledge, and that was about it, you know. But he's good, he saved us, you know. Now would, would he have, um, would he have had a, a role in giving any advice in aerodynamics or anything like no. that? No, I was strictly bachelor. So that was Dean Batchelor who yeah. kind of came up with the general shape of the he car. Was, and he's the one that says do this, do that. This is how we're going to build it. So. And where where did you build the car? In a garage, two-car garage. That was behind an apartment building that George and his wife lived in there in Burbank. George Hill. Yeah, I can't remember what street it was. But yeah. It was on an alley. So we filled the alley up with cars. Did so you, that's where we built the car. Did you build the chassis and the body there? Every, no. The body we built out of Joan Spencer's house. Because he had a concrete slab that we could jack it up on, put it up on blocks and plaster it, and then build a body on it there. Hmm. Yeah, that was one of those little, little side deals that we had the body all done, the plaster mold all done. We were ready lay fiberglass and it was up on blocks about this high off the ground we had it on wooden blocks of wheels that's all that was holding it up there and the Tehachapi quake hit of course we felt it it woke me up Burbank I live in Burbank on the side of the hill there and it, it rattled things around so mm. it woke us up to Tehachapi I was hated to go by, it was right where I was working. 
I had to go by to see if it was still on there or mm. if it had fallen, <laughs> but it stayed there. So it didn't damage the car no. then? so that's the only reason we got it done, really. Otherwise, we've been history. Yeah, we did everything on it. Ran those places. And again, it was uh, it was Clem Tebow who supplied the engine yeah. for the car? he and Don Clark, who were partners in the CT Automotive, which building stroker kits. One of the most amazing things about that engine are those cylinder heads. Um, oh, they had a smaller, you know. Tell, tell me about those. Those are a one-shot deal. Were they literally a one-off set of heads? or? Well, they made patterns for them. They were trying to, going to produce them. It's Kenny Adams, Rudy, Rudy Moeller. Uh, Rudy Moeller is still alive. He works for Nick Arias. Hmm. Arias Piston. And he's the one that designed the latest Chevy Hemi head that Arias has. Arias has a Chevy V8 small block. This Moeller designed that. Wow. So he's he, still around. He goes way back with cylinder yeah. head design. But they had this, <laughs> they built it, and they needed money, and Clem found out about it somehow, went and bought the whole works, patterns and all. Huh. The patterns are out of Speedy. Speedy Bill's got the patterns. Speedy Bill has the patterns, and he, he also has, has the cylinder he, heads, he right? Has a, he, has, he has a complete motor. The complete engine out of the yeah. streamliner. Wow, so thing, so, some of that car, after it crashed in 1955, some of that car was yeah, salvaged. Yeah, when we crashed, it didn't have that motor in it. It had the DeSoto in it, my car. Hmm. It got to the point where it just wasn't. Well, the next year we went back in 53, and we were having problems with the motor. I don't know what it was, but we, didn't, we were in second to Hooper. So. Broke the record, so then we ran, ran a couple more times. And then we made a deal with Duncan, who has Tony Cabana built the engine. We sold it for him. They were in the drag racing. They were strong motors, and we were running well over 240 when we broke the axle on her so, on the return. I think we'd gone out at a 238 or something like that. So the DeSoto in it. Just like a horsepower. So it didn't really go much faster with the DeSoto at all, did it? No. But this car design goes up on the square. The uh, Dean told us uh, it takes 60 horsepower to go 60 miles an hour. Takes 100 horsepower to go 100 miles an hour. To go 230, it took 320 horsepower. I was going to say, I was wondering where the where the math started yeah, to kind so of as spread. You go up faster, yeah. Then it takes that x many or more horsepower. Now that that Clem Tebow engine, the first engine, the engine you set the record with in 1952. Um, that's a flathead Ford, but with an overhead valve conversion, but not just that. Is it an overhead valve conversion or an overhead cam conversion? 
overhead valve. Overhead valve conversion. Okay. Looks like a camera, but it doesn't. Yeah, it does look like a camera. Yeah. Because uh, it's got bell cranks instead of rocker arms. Okay. And uh, there's a transverse push rod that runs through the head over to the exhaust for the bell crank on the exhaust. So theoretically, it should have turned more RPM. And I really don't know why we didn't. But we ran that engine about 5,200, 5,200. Which is, is when I run the flight at 5,000. Yeah, 5,200, that's, that's what you'd run most any hot, really hot flathead, wouldn't, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can't get much more out of it. Because this, this engine's got big valves in it. I got an instant three quarter intake, engine five A's exhaust, which is the biggest valves you get in it. They're right out the edge. Now and now we're talking about the three hundred and four cubic inch, right? Yeah, like, flathead that's right here next yeah, to next that's to what us. That was always was the three hundred inch. So I found the block and I bored it seven sixteenths, mm -hmm. which would give me three hundred five. Actually, a little over, so I had to build a shorter crank. It's twenty five thousandths short on being a three eighths, three and three eighths, three one hundred. And I did that, I ran into a problem at the lake bed when I ran the belly tank. I ran the 197. They checked it and said it was illegal. But then I said, okay, make sure everything's perfect. Because I made that under that 25,000 short. Yeah. So I kept the inches down just an inch. It was over the 305 limit. So were you over? Were they no, wrong? I was legal. They said I was over, but then they. I made them check it two or three times. They finally agreed with me. Huh? That's what the stroke was. I just measured all oh, three stroke. You know, they didn't measure twenty-five thousand short. Hmm. So that's what's in this. That crank's still in this. The crank is still in this yeah. that you ran in the belly tanker. And what would you have run for a cam in that? Uh, I ran popping. Was that kind of your? go-to cam? Were you a Potvin man necessarily? Yeah, because he had the best deal. They were all about the same. Uh, Eskandarian was good. His 404 was a good cam. Potvin's... Uh, Winfield's for Flathead weren't that good. They were good, but they weren't. Uh, trying to think the other cam manufacturers. No, I just got a good deal from Papa, and he purchased them. Mm -hmm. Engel built some good uh, overhead valve cams. But later on, I went to Engel's. That's what I ran with front motors. Just wherever you get a deal. That's all it is. Well, like say the cam in this engine, when when you went to Podvin, did you tell him what you were doing? Did you give him the specs on the engine, or did he just pull one off the know shelf? That that well, he I was, just wondered if he ground it specifically. He was to a the, guru. He knew what he wanted. Try this. You like it. And what about heads and intake? What did you run on that? Navarro. But I got a deal with Navarro. He's the one that got me on it. At the time, nobody was really paying much attention, and the piston manufacturers weren't that close because they were all sandcast pistons. That. He got me running flat top pistons, the regular dome piston. 
Navarro did. Yeah. Huh. So I had flat top pistons in it. Then I take them. I put it all in then and I got a short so I pop the piston right up the top. Put it all together and I'd measure it, how much it popped out. Then we took the heads and milled the spot, cut the dome part of the flat part, cut it out so it was all the same. So the hmm. compression ratio was the same. These are one of the things that you did at that period of time. Now everything is so right on now, you don't have to worry about this kind of thing. And that's why I stopped running the engine. Because when I, I don't, for some reason I bought a new set of pistons for it. I can't remember why. Got them from JE and I wanted flat tops. So they made me flat tops. The only trouble is the buckers have taken them. The dome pistons just got them all flat. So I made one pass at Saugus with a coupe, 32 coupe. That ends on 75%. That went about halfway. Blew a hole in the piston. And that's the last time I ran the motor. No kidding. This, this had to be 53 or 54. Do you remember what kind of times you ran in the coupe at Saugus with it? Uh, well, we started out at around 113. Then we lightened it up. I think we ran 116, 118. But we were fast. We were winning the war bonds. It's when they first started giving war bonds for a top time, top eliminator. Instead of a trophy or something, yeah. Oh, you get the trophy too, but you got a bond too. Was that a street car, that coupe? Hmm? Was that a street car or just a drag car? Well, the, the first one was a, a street coupe. Then we decided that one party at our club. This is a different club, Valley Drifters. And we decided we'd build a new uh, coupe strictly for drag racing. And this is around, this is around Labor Day, or uh, New Year's Eve, New Year's. So I went off the next day looking for a coupe body and I found a nice five window 32 Ford coupe in a junkyard. It was nice. It was all straight and that. And we took and gutted that son of a bitch, cut holes in it, destroyed it. <laughs> I paid five dollars for it. You paid five dollars for the whole car? For the whole car. <laughs> for the body. It was just the body. Okay. I didn't get the frame now. Just all I wanted was the body. Yeah. Because I had a frame. Mm. Oh, we destroyed the body. I feel bad about it. Today's now, you know. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> if I'd known then, what well, I know now. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the stuff, you know. That's the stuff you learn, so. Yeah. That's how it goes. But that, by that time, that 304-inch uh, flathead was a pretty pretty much a full race motor at that Oh, it was a full race motor. Yeah, it was strictly a race engine. I tried to drive it. I drove on the street a little bit. But I have to go to the airport, Burbank Airport. Had a gas station in the center of the terminal there. Uh, I could buy half gas there. Mm-hmm. Real 100 miles, 106 octane, I think. And that would help. So you were really running some big compression in that then? Yeah, 
I was on 11 and a half, 12 to 1. My God. I, I don't know that I've heard of that much compression in a flathead. But on horsepower, you got to. There's some kind of thing with the combustion chamber design of a flathead where it'll start to fall off, won't it, the, the horsepower? If you start to really clamp it down and... I guess probably it might be now, yeah. Yeah. Well, whatever you were doing, you That's were doing what they it... they say. You were doing it right, whatever you were doing. Because it isn't... Like you're not supposed to have release, so... They work pitching. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with relief, but... Well, that was a... That was a real big Navarro concept, wasn't it? Well, one of them, all of them at the yeah. time. All the engine manufacturers, or head manufacturers, are that way. Hmm. It's just this new group of people that know all the engines. It sounds like you knew Barney Navarro yeah, pretty well. What kind of guy was he? He sounds he like a, pretty cool. an interesting guy. He was innovative, a little hard-headed. What do you, all people in that business are hard-headed. Mm -hmm. He always struck me as kind of a almost a scientist type. Yeah, you, you put it that way. Yeah. He was always three steps ahead of everybody. Hmm. Looking for bigger and better things. Yeah, yeah. And you, so you ran Navarro intake and heads. Yeah. And well, it was no, I had heads. I because he didn't have a four carburetor manifold. Okay. So I ran Wyand's. That's right. Yeah, Wyand. So Navarro never. I don't know. He may have made one, but at that time, he didn't make one. So this is why I was switched. And I knew Phil real well. I knew most everybody in the business at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, on a first name basis. So. One of the cool features to me, there's a lot of cool stuff about that engine, but one of my favorite things about it is how you've put a sight window in the cast, cast bell housing. Oh. So you've got a timing mark, and, oh, yeah. and did got you to. did you do that oh, yeah. originally when you first built that engine? Were there other guys doing that? Because I haven't really seen oh, yeah. that very much. We all know that flatheads are real. It's hard to, you know, know what your top dead center is, and hard to put a light on them, and hard to put a mark on them. I've, you know, like I can't remember. I'm trying to remember now how much spark speed I ran the flathead. I don't know. But you had, you could put a light on that, and oh, yeah. and you could you uh, time it back there at that's the at the flywheel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, that's one of those things. You, you fool with them enough, and you fool with people that do things like that. You learn all this stuff. People I hung around with, I ran around with, were all pretty smart individuals. They're smart in their own self, you know. Yeah. Yeah. They were achievers. They accomplished what they set out to do. And that's all it was, the self-ego, you know. What do I want to do? And trying to, you what know. Do I, what do you want to accomplish, you know? Well, and, it, and keeping up with each other, too, I'm sure, as soon as one oh, guy yeah. went a little faster. Well, when you run up in front, you got to do that. Yeah, yeah. You're always trying something different. Mm -hmm. Like I had a, a friend of mine, this Cobbs, he had a blown flathead. They ran in a, it'll be a, a coupe like a Christmas coupe. He ran good. He'd be, he'd run faster than Christmas. 
with a blown flathead on it, and then he had a blown Chevy. Hmm. The four seventy one. He started off with a a, a two seventy one, then he went to a three on top, and then he made a crank driven four seventy one. We fool. We'd fool around and down and find out things on the dyno. We found out how much horsepower it took to pull a 471 at 5,000. Takes 100 horsepower to turn just the board. We did all the stuff like that. Then when I was running a, a Buick for this uh, Bill Murphy Buick there in uh, a sports car here in Culver City, I ran the Buick on the time all the time too. One of the original first V8 Buicks. And you said that was in a sports car? Yeah, a Curtis Plan Shell. What would that, that have been, a, like a Curtis 500 or something like mm -hmm. that? Well, it'd be a copy of the Curtis 500. Mm-hmm. You know, with fenders on it, that's all it was. Yeah, he had a, he had a midget, an Alfie midget, that Ruttman would drive every once in a while. They wouldn't let me fuck with it. Big boys had to do that, so. <laughs> would this, would Rutman, was this after 52? Would Rutman have already no, won the 500? Be, well, yeah, this was after 52. Yeah. I'm trying to think when I went to work for Murphy. 50, I went to work for him in 53, 54. So I went to Mexican Road Race, 53 with Dean Bachelor. No kidding. He and I went down there, yeah. No kid, that had to be a, quite an experience. We shot film for an outfit there, shot racing film. So you you weren't there racing, you were there, I was out there filming stuff and filming, watching and... Going out ahead and watching some film. What was that like down? That had to be just oh, crazy. Oh, it's far out. I bet. They just finished paving the road. And even one, there was one spot there down, I was about, Hundred miles out of the start at the Wanpak, uh, across the river, and the bridge was a wooden bridge, trestle bridge, and it just had three two by sixes, the width of their tires going across it. Wow, that was fun to come out of a corner. Yeah, you come out of the right hand corner and you have to line up and then. Well, it was about a mile long. <laughs> the bridge was? Yeah. You go oh, my God. The bridge on the two by sixes. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was cool. They started the race. There was... Started with all the cars. And then with us, they told us we were out ahead of the race. So when... At the end of the race, when the last race car went by... We could go on the road, but we had to wait for these motorcycles, motorcycle police. Mm -hmm. They all had silver Harley Davidsons, painted silver, all painted silver. Interesting. There must have been a hundred of them. And these are the Mexican police? Mexican police, they were that. And they're then, running ahead of the race? Well, no, they were running behind the race. Oh, okay. Oh. They were the last, as soon as the last car left the starting, they'd take off. They'd, run down the road. Then they had a Lincoln that had a big 777 on the side of it, mm -hmm. which is a copy of Lens, Kessie Lens. And that was the 
that was the official last car. So as soon as it went by, we could get get back on the road and follow it hmm. to the next stop. And they started, there was at least 100 motorcycles. But on the last leg going to Chihuahua, I think there was maybe 10 motorcycles left. <laughs> <laughs> we go by, they miss it by the side of the road and we'll blow it up. Oh my God. That was funny. <laughs> that was good. We had a good time on that one. Yeah, Dean knew this guy who lived in Mexico City who published a magazine similar to Hot Rod Magazine at the time. And we stopped in Mexico City and got him. Picked him up and he rode with us. I had a, <clears throat> had a 53, because I had a 53 Ford truck. I just bought it brand new. And I wanted an overhead valve, but I couldn't get one, so I bought the six cylinder. Hmm. Six. Mm -hmm. It was a good run, thing and run good. It's a nice truck with an overdrive. And we ran it, we followed the race. Of course, once you pull out on the highway, you get going, you go past the slower cars. <laughs> so we were practically about when we got to the first stop. Who I stopped for the night, we'd be about halfway in the field of cars. No kidding. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you'd picked off some cars that were in the race with yeah. your follow truck. The small little... Your six-cylinder you know, follow truck. Yeah, your small little truck, so. <laughs> huh. oh, yeah, that was a good job. Was that the only time you went to that race? Because yeah. it, it, they stopped that running that thing in 50... I think they may have something. run a couple of years ago. They tried to run it again, but they just repaved it. It started where in Tuxtla got the Gutierrez. It's a nice little town. It was about 100 miles from the Guatemalan border. And at the time, it was pretty amazing. The Strop team was running the Lincolns. And of course, we knew most guys that worked for him. Mm -hmm. So we got to hang around with them. You knew Bill Strop? Yeah, I knew mm -hmm. Strop. And uh, Leroy worked for him. Uh, Tony and I drove one of the cars. Faulkner drove another one, I think. Steven, I can't remember who all, but they had three cars. And they worked in the Ford garages. The Ford garages are nice. Oh. They were brand new. Most of them were all brand new buildings. Yeah, you know? I bet. Really nice deal. Yeah. So, yeah, I was pretty interested in Tuxedo there. It's a, the town was just a street. There'd just be a narrow street. It wouldn't be too wide. It'd be about maybe a lane, lane and a half wide. And it was all walls and doors. And you couldn't hmm. see the houses. All the houses were built run back in uh -huh. on these walls. Huh. Of course, there's patios out on the second floor. Right? So we went, one night we were looking for the Porsche factory. This guy found out where they were. So we drove down this one street. There wasn't anything on this. There was a couple of cars parked outside, but not many. So we knocked on the door and they opened up the door. And we looked in there and we went in because he knew, he knew the right people. And there was... Uh, Three or four, no, there's more than that. Porsche is sitting in his courtyard. There's a beautiful, nice little courtyard with a house all the way around it. It's courtyard, and that's how they lived in that area. 
Hmm. These were all what they were were people like people from Germany that were associated with Porsche. They lived there. They retired and lived there, so they Valencia was the same way, Ferrari was the same way. They were compatriots from that they picked them out and that's where they worked on their cars. Yeah. So yeah. they weren't out in an open area working on their race cars. Mercedes was the same way. Mercedes they were a nice race car. All of them were pretty nice really, so but it was interesting. It was a fun time. That had to be a, a really amazing thing, I would think, for a, for a young guy from... From a hot rodder, yeah. Yeah, from a young, for a young guy from Southern California who'd yeah. really been mostly around hot rods. I mean, you'd been around some race cars, oh, yeah. you know, sprint cars, midgets, and, and whatnot, but to, to go down there and see the factory-backed European teams and, and uh, some pretty exotic stuff. I mean, the, cool. the Lancia, Ferrari, Porsche stuff had to just be... Compared to the cars you were seeing around you at the yeah, time, the had it just seemed so. space age almost, I would think. And the famous drivers that would have come along with it. So they weren't famous at the time. Yeah. Well, I just, I guess I mean more <laughs> like the international guys you may have yeah. read about in the magazines, you know, Fangio and people like that who were Nuvolari and those guys that were. Uh, yeah, but, they're pretty cool. Of course, Phil Hill, I guess, would have been running at yeah. the Carrera back then for Ferrari. Well, yeah, because when I was at Murphy, we ran the Sack Basins circuit. With the Curtis? With the Curtis, yeah. Yeah. How did that car do? It would have done much better if we'd had a driver. Murphy wasn't much of a driver. He'd run down the corner and jump on the brakes, go around the corner. Still got it. It just had a. I had a three-speed Buick transmission behind it, and it. Uh, we took it to Sebring in '55. No kidding. We went to Sebring. My God. Sam Sam Hanks drove co-drove it, co -drove it that day. He yeah. he he's a good driver. Yeah, he's good. Oh yeah, <laughs> he got shut down, shot at right out the first practice. Cause he's going in and he was diving on these guys and go through the corner and they'd be in the corner and he'd go underneath them and off and that was forbidden. You weren't supposed to. You were supposed to follow the car through the corner. Oh yeah. At that yeah. time, you know. Yeah, keep the line. All they came down, they jumped on his ass. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, we ended up. I think we had fourth fast time qualifying. At Sebring. At Sebring. 12-hour race. Fourth fastest overall? Fourth fastest overall. My God. Wow. That was when the, the D-Jags, the first time the D-Jags were in. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. they were nice. Yeah. They Cunningham, were. I think, would have been fielding a few of those then, well, right? Well, Cunningham had his cars there, but he wasn't in the class of the Jags. Jag was in the class by itself. Mm. Yeah. It was nice. Huh. Yeah, we would have done probably better if we hadn't had a fuck-up. At that period of time, when you ran sports cars, like a 12-hour race, if something went wrong, you'd get back in the pits to work on it and fix it. Mm -hmm. But everything to fix it had to be in the car. You couldn't carry spare parts to the pits or tools or anything. Yeah. Everything had to be in the truck. So we had a toolbox in the car. And he went out and he ran all oh, about the first 
half hour. But he was running real good. And he came in because he'd run out of power, out of electrical. Uh, cable, the battery was in the back and the cable run through the frame and it chafed and grounded out on the frame. So we got the tape out of the deal and I taped it all up but there. But then we had to sit there and wait for the battery to come back up enough to start it because you couldn't push start it. You had to start on the starter. Yeah. So we finally, we waited almost an hour in the pits. And then took off and then we ran good. Oh, then oh, about three or four hours out of the, before the end of the race, we lost the clutch. It was still locked up, but it was in high gear. Yeah, I'm not familiar with the layout of that, the way that track was then. Um, there were tight enough spots that you couldn't, you couldn't lug that car around in third gear. Well, you could shift it without the clutch. You just have to match it, that's all. Yeah. That's what he did. Yeah. The only problem is when we stop for fuel, you got to turn it off. So you just put it in the first gear. It's <laughs> starts switch. Dum, 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 yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah. Hope it starts. <laughs> yeah. Now, who? this would have been Sam Hanks driving it at that yeah. time. Hanks yeah, Hanks and Murphy. Both of them drove huh. it. Huh. They co-drove it. And we finished 13th overall, which I thought was pretty good. That's damn good. I mean, for being in the pits for an hour and... Losing your clutch, that's... Wow, you guys would have been near, right up at the front had you had no problems. Yeah, we were no problems. See, I, Willie, I had no idea that you did sports car stuff. That's, that's news to me. Oh, yeah. I, guess I, sh I guess I should have figured. The, <laughs> the sports cars, the sack bases, ever really evolved. And that, however, on the West Coast, they were pretty good. We were at... Uh, Candlestick Park, Golden Gate Park, I'm sorry, uh, Torrey Pines, or it was a golf cart, it was an old army base. Yeah. When we ran it, Torrey yeah. Pines. And uh, Palm Springs had a race too, right? We ran Palm Springs, yeah. Ran uh, Santa Barbara, which is a Goleta at the airport. Uh, there was one in Tracy. Near Man. Sacramento. Uh, Were these and Riverside? Riverside was a nice one. Yeah, that was still a sack base. They had forty-sevens uh, sitting out on the runway there. The say, 40. say that again. Forty-sevens, uh, the bombers. Oh. Yeah, yeah. B-47s. Gotcha. B-47s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was, you see some weird stuff there. That was the first time I saw one. We're getting ready to start. All the cars are out on the grid there. And I walked by this one car and there's a pair of motor running. I looked down at it. It had a little Wisconsin motor in it. And the stationary motor. It yeah. was sitting just bang, 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 you know. Crazy. Belonged to this Lou Fagel, who had a twin coach bus. He built buses mm -hmm. with twin motors in them. Mm -hmm. He had a motor in the back, motor in the front, and they, huh. they were blown. And he used these Wisconsin motors to run the blowers. Well, that, oh, co was, that covers your horsepower loss for yeah, your blower so drive. It was pretty cool. There huh. was some weird stuff. Wow. Of course, all the hot dogs. And, 
40 car drivers at their time there. Kimberly was riding a run up Ferrari. Mm hmm. That owns Kimberly Paper. Mm hmm. And, uh, he's a pretty nice guy. I liked him. He's pretty normal. So. Most of the guys were pretty good. Now, the all sportsmen that ran that circuit, you know. Uh huh. And these races that you just listed, that would that would have all been Cal Club stuff. That was yeah. just pre-SCCA for for California. Uh, they were SCCA, but the Cal Club ran them. Okay. Okay. This is before uh, SCCA wasn't much at that mm -hmm. time. The Cal Club was running. Well, yeah, and they were such an East Coast yeah. thing, the SCCA. But yeah, there were some. I mean, there were some big guys around uh, with Ferraris, and I mean John Edgar and oh, yeah. Paravano, and all all kinds of uh, uh, kind of moneyed, you know, dealers and real estate guys with their. Yeah, that's where uh, Gurney ran that circuit with. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, I can't even think of his name now. That car is here. Yeah, it was interesting. The fact that you ran a, a Buick in, in this Curtis sports car that you built, did that have anything to do with Max Balchowski, or did, was he not around? He was running at the same time. He was running at the same time. Right. He was running huh. at the same time. Because he was a big nailhead Buick believer, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, he, he ran good. He and ran I think good. Gurney drove his uh, yellow, his old, old yellow, yellow car. Yellow. Uh, we ran against Old Yeller. So. Yeah, he was. He stayed local though. He stayed in California. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd go out and have lunch with him every once in a while. I knew him pretty well. I forgot about him. Max and Ina, was that his wife's name? I think it would have been yeah. something like that. He always sounded like a like kind of a character too. Uh, Newmeyer. John Newman. There's a bunch of them. Or was uh, it Von Newman? Was that his name? Von Newman, yeah. Johnny Von Newman, yeah. Ken Miles. No, he was a racer. He was a good driver, Ken Miles. Though. Hmm. Shame that car came apart and killed him. So. One of the first composite cars. Came apart. The uh, which car was that now? The Ford that Miles was testing at Riverside. Oh, the GT40. Well, the uh, or was it the Daytona? A Daytona no, coupe. Be before the 40. Okay. They were just starting getting in the composite car business. Yeah. Building composite cars. I can't remember, but it was an experimental car and it came apart. Yeah. Composites failed. <laughs> mm. Kill him. Uh, yeah, Riverside was an absolute trap, though. I ran a 500 lap uh, midget race there one day. I ran one. On the road course? On the road course. I ran 500, 500 miles. That was 500 miles, I'm sorry. With the midgets, uh, sprint cars. How was that? I, and stock cars. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew they ran stock cars there. They I had no three, idea they ever three, ran midgets. Three five hundred mile races. Yeah. Wow. I'm impressed you could get the gearing right for that for and the track. And we were just one high, one gear. That ran uh, drive-on trailers. Midget Ernie Rose. And what was his name? Les Scott. Before Les came back here. Had drum shoe brakes. At <laughs> first got blats to get any brakes. It was just one of those deals. I'm kind of curious to know how and when you started to make the transition in life into working on cars and building cars as a profession. Very simple. I had a sprint car on the West Coast. I couldn't run the sprint car and make a living at it, so that's why I came back here. But you had said that like around when you were building these flatheads, that you had built a few for for customers, for other people. Well, yeah, but you couldn't make a living at it. But you, at some point, must have had a shop that, that uh, you took customer work in, and and it, I'm just kind of interested in knowing how that would have built up and when you would have realized, well, I'm going to do this for a living, I guess. Well, I don't know, I had a shop. Well, I had to... I mean, at some point it had to start. Uh, well, at that point, I had worked. to start looking like, well, I'm going to be doing this for a living, and here's what it's going to look like. Well, I was working like. as a carpenter as a living, so and cement finisher back in, in the '50s until oh, '57. So that's how you were paying for all your car stuff. Oh yeah, was with car. You had a daytime. You had a day gig had a doing day carpentry. Oh yeah, I worked hard. Ford concrete. We were building track houses of 300 or more. Okay. Apartments. Were you a contractor or? or no, my dad was. He and another guy were contractors. I ran the cement crew. Oh, yeah, I guess that's just what I did up till 57, I guess. Yeah, because I came, I came back here in '57 for the race. Yeah. Oh, I worked in an old agency for a couple of years so before that. '55, What was it about 1957 that that that's kind of a marker for you? Well, I came back here to the Speedway for the first time. That was the first time you'd been to a been the 500? Been to the Speedway, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I'd run the 100 mile races, or tried to run the 100 mile races at Sacramento Speedway. But then we went from here, after the race, went to Langhorn, and this guy drove for us, this Art Bish. He had a reserve on a hard chrome there in Phoenix. He chrome crankshafts, mm -hmm. industrial crankshafts, and everything else. But he was running for this R.D. Whittington, who had a McGrath's old car, one of McGrath's children, 
and we went to Langhorn. Another guy was taking care of uh, Phoenix. We ran third at Langhorn. Then we went from there out here. We went to Milwaukee for the next race the next week. So we went to this other buddy and I were. Well, we came back here to shoot film for an outfit. Well, we came back at seven four. We went to Milwaukee, and then. Hang we, on, I'm going to stop you because that. Uh, that's why you came out to Indianapolis to the 500 to, yeah, to film? Yeah, basically the main reason is to shoot film. Because we've been shooting film, race film, the same guy we did the road race for. Okay. He built, he furnished the films for like Champion and Firestone and that for the promotional for uh -huh. films. Yeah. Well, he'd come back and uh, we came back ahead of him and shot footage ahead of time. So. Went to Milwaukee and Bish, he got Brian put him in the fence, he crashed the tail and all that, so I put the tail in my truck, and I went back to the coast, I got the tail straightened out, then I went to Phoenix, I worked for Whittington then, and this is Hornback. <clears throat> I took care of the car, then Hornback got out of the picture, and I took care of the cars for Whittington. He had another car, then I ran Pike's Peak with Whittington. 57, 58, other car that he had. Now, were you doing any driving no, at, at I wasn't this time? No, I was just down the highway. Mm -hmm. Then, 58, Bish got a call from this Ernie Rose, a traveling trailer in Modesto, California. He wanted him to run his car at Phoenix, North Sacramento. So I flew to Modesto and picked up the car and took it to Sacramento. And what happened? We had problems with the motor leaking water. So I took the block apart. I left it in Drake. I went back, got ready for Phoenix, and Drake brought it down to me. And we were in Phoenix. We were in fourth that day. Oh. Can I ask what what was the car you were running? up the hill with, uh, at Pike's Peak? Well, I ran 57, I ran the McGrath car with an off in it. So these are champ cars? These, these are big cars, cars you were, these you were are running? These are big cars. And in 58, I had uh, the Blakely Oil Special. Hmm. Whittington had bought that. And he drove it, he, he'd spin it out. He, he was all right. That he, his three boys were the Whittington boys that ran the speedway. He was a, he had a used car lot in Farmington, New Mexico. He made his first million off of selling trucks and cars to the Indians, Bobos. Hmm. Where he made his first million. Uh-huh. Then he, then he moved to Phoenix. Then he moved to Hawaii. Then I ran into him in Florida in the 70s, late 60s. But R.D. was all right. He's, supposedly he tried to be a race car driver. Mm -hmm. And he ended up selling his stuff. I had it for a while. Then I worked for Ernie Ruiz for a couple of years. Ran his measured indoors at Oakland. Mr. Ruiz measured a couple of times. It was an offie. 
And you're primarily, are you, what are you doing at this time? Are you, are you setting these cars up? Are you, you oh, yeah. building, the, building the engines, them care of them, repairing the them when they've been crashed? And doing all the work on them. All the work on them. Basically take care of them. So. And transporting them from yeah. location to location? No. That'd be that period of time. And these are, uh, and I apologize if this is a dumb question, but a lot of these cars, these champ cars, these big cars that you're running at this time in the 50s, that you're running Pikes Peak with, you're running small little tracks with, local tracks, these are, a lot of these cars, or some of them anyway, are Speedway cars as well, oh, yeah. aren't they? Like yeah. the Blakely Oil but Special I, would have well, been Well, the Blakely Oil car was a Bobby Ball drove in at the Speedway. See, that, that amazes me, and I think a lot of people don't realize that. That those cars, in in that time in the fifties, it wasn't unusual, was it, for a car to show up at the speedway one year, and then you'd see it, you know, oh, on yeah, the other side of the country at a small little I could be someplace local sure. track, and then you'd see it going up Pikes Peak. Yeah, Pikes Peak that was fun. And you were run; these are mostly offy. Oh, okay. Not with all that, so yeah, they, they were. They were kings of, of that hill, weren't they? Right, they were. Well, that's when I went back and I built a, decided to build my first sprint car. Tube frame sprint car. Back in the first 60s. Then I came back. I brought it back here in the fall of 62. You built it in California and brought it to Indianapolis? Right, yeah. Clem and I. Or to Indiana. Clem furnished the rear end and the engine and that. I furnished the chassis. I brought it back here for, for five or six races in uh, 52 or 62. Then we went back and we ran. Then I brought it back in 63. 63, first year I came back for the opening season. Hmm. It was Chuck Holtz driving for me. And he, he ran good, we made money. I had ten grand in the bank by Labor Day. Hmm. We'd won one race. That's a lot of money. At four or five <laughs> seconds. We huh. didn't go with that car. Crashed it at Hatfield, I had to fix it. Then going to then he decided he had to drive for Watson. So I heard Johnny White, Johnny White go for me to coin. I think we ended up fourth again. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. And again, these and are going to Kansas City that night. Uh, some kid fell asleep and hit me head on. Oh my truck, God! Total the truck, the race car out, the whole works. Oh my trailer. God! Put me out of business. How did you survive that? Lucky. I guess so. He was hit, the, what, did the kid survive it? Hit at the left right. He was driving a big ton and a half corn binder. Box truck hit me at the right front corner or the left front corner. Went down the whole side, pulled the rear end out of the truck. Got up on top of the fucking trailer, destroyed the race car. Oh my god! it. Then he bounced off. Had a tire rack on the front, a three post tire rack. Took it completely off. Left it on the highway. That was in Missouri. Concordia, Missouri. Wow, how did you recover from that? What did, 
what what was your first move when you got all that stuff well, kind of taken move, away from we, you? Uh, I rented a car, I guess. Yeah. Went to the racetrack right uh, next night. Told Johnny White I wasn't gonna have a car there. Then we went back. I came back here. Forget how I got. I may have got hitched right back here. Came back here. No, I bought a truck from a Ford dealer, an old six-cylinder Ford. Left, traded mine, left mine there. It had a CAD in it, CAD Hydromatic in it. Hmm. It's good running, it's been all over the country. I bought a truck, came back here, borrowed a trailer off of Brauner. Then I gathered all my shit together here, and I went to Missouri, picked up the car. Then went on back to the coast. Then I built a new frame. And how are you, how are you funding your life at this time? Because you're not in the construction business anymore. So you've what got had, you've got sponsorship. What I had made, no, no sponsors. Just what I'd saved up racing. Oh, you said you had ten thousand dollars in the bank. Roughly so. ten in the bank. So I lived on that. Got the race car back together. Man, that's a pretty good stash in the early 60s. That's Yeah, it was good money. Yeah. Oh. And you're building the complete cars, right? You're, are you building the oh, engines, yeah. too? Bodies, everything. And you're running offies? No, Chevy lines. Chevys. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, I built a new frame, and then I ran it. At 63, I ran one race at Phoenix on the mile. Then Clem had a chance to get out of the business. He had a good, he had a nice, he had a speed shop there in North Hollywood, CT Automotive. Mm hmm. Yep. And uh, he got a chance to sell it to uh, Greg Welch, the car, less engine. So Greg came, picked it up, took it. So I didn't have a car in '63. So I built a new car in '63. And are, are most of the tracks dirt that you're running, or are you running a little bit of both? Running both. Yeah. Pavement and dirt. And I, I don't know if you'll remember this, but I'm just curious as a guy who's, I've built some Chevys for street cars I've had over the years. And uh, I'm always curious, like what, what could you, what were you getting? What, they were, what, 331 cubic inch or so, 327s? Or were they bigger than that? The Chevys you were building in most of them were 300 inches. Oh, okay. So they were. We had a 300 inch limit. Okay. Sprint cars had a sprint uh, 300 inch limit. So they were 300 inch small block Chevys, based off of 283s. Yeah. Okay. Uh, injected Hillborn injected, oh. and running alcohol. Yeah, most uh, I was running 10 percent at the time because I get 10 percent off of. So one of those 300-inch Chevys in race trim back then, what were they making on the dyno? Oh. I don't know. I ran it. I can't remember. I ran, I ran my Chevy the 
week that Kennedy got killed. Ready it on the it's all right if you don't remember. Four and a half, four eighty-five, something like that. Yeah, right in that range. And way up there too, probably at about eight grand or something. No, it was about seven seventy-two. Hmm. I didn't turn much faster that, Jerry. That's those are some of my favorite cars. I love those cars. That that era of uh, dirt cars, just uh, great-looking cars, great-sounding cars. Well, in that period of time, I went, I went to work for Watson right after that period of time. So you would have went to and work? I worked for the, in the winter with him. Mm -hmm. I come back for the speed rate, and I go back to the coast. Went back, what, 63 or 64. Uh, Ronnie Ward built my copies of Watson's car, mm -hmm. four And I went to work for Ronnie. Hmm. We built six cars that he sold. And I built the seventh car. And I brought it back. Still working in California? Still well, living in California and then spending the summer back here. Mm -hmm. I come back. Because I was here until after the Speedway, and then I usually go back because find something. But my first car back here was 65, I think. First, later, four bar. Hey, I ran it. I commute back and forth. Worked for Watson, get her car. And there was a period of time I worked for uh, Bells. Did the motors for Bells when Leonard was driving it. Morris got hurt, so he had. And I just, well, I'd worked for a while for Sonny Myers. That Myers. Ford deal doing the Ford motors. No, everything. Mm -hmm. Pick up jobs here and there. Mm -hmm. And finally, I had a couple guys drive the. Well, Tinglestad drove the sprint car a couple times for me. Really never had real good luck. Took it off the coast one week, one winter, and Gary got a permit to Gary to run it. He burned the tires off of it. So I was working for Watson then, full time. I forget what year it was. We hired, hired Gary to run what? Heidelberg or New Ber or uh, Reading, I can't remember. Oh, Heidelberg. Then mostly ran Watson's car at Reading, and I had. Gary run at Reading, I think. No, first race that he ran out with New Bremen. That was Gary who was getting ready to take his rookie test to because uh, he was on the coast working on Joe Hunt's car and he flew in to run the New Bremen race. We ended up running second. We've been good since then. Just one of those combinations of click. Yeah, I'd say so. Made good money. And at, and when you went Made enough to live off of it. You know, off the race car. Of course, I wasn't married. I've a little bit of everything, survived, and that's about it. Well, I'll tell you what, we can call it a day if you'd like. I hope you understand how much I appreciate your time. I really do. I think people will really enjoy it.
I think there are a lot of people in the hot rod and car world that have, they won't believe it when they hear that this thing's being rebuilt. It's pretty exciting. All right, well, folks, there you have it. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Rodcast brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation. We want to thank our very special guest, of course, Willie Davis, for sharing his time, his memories, and his truly great stories with us. Special thanks to Roy Carruthers for making the introduction and uh, making this even happen. Special thanks to our announcer, Larry Babb, for another fine job, and the entire family and staff of the American Hot Rod Foundation. Our PR person is Angela Helton, and social media strategy comes from Crystal Hayes. Technical assistance by Eric Curtis and Katie Sloan, and our theme song was written and recorded by yours truly. We also want to send out a special thank you to the Foundation historian and archivist, Jim Miller, who keeps us straight as someone can on our facts and figures and dates and times. Uh, the American Hot Rod Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and was founded in 2002 by Steve and Carol Mamishian with the sole purpose of preserving the history of hot rodding. It is only through their vision and generous support of this work that any of this is happening at all. So please continue to support and follow us. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Check out our website for daily updates on all things going on in and, in and around the uh, American Hot Rod Foundation. We also have a mailing list you can subscribe to. Plenty of cool merchandise available all on our website. Thanks again for joining us on another Rodcast. We hope you'll be listening again soon. Thanks for listening to another great episode of the Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.